I've just about had enough of you. I think you'll be able to respect a husband who's probably pulled the scientific boner of all time. In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Irony, one of the funniest forms of humor. I have made a woman. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. Think all is never wrong. Never Hello, and welcome to 50 Years of Shit Robots with Matt Brown. Hello, and Stephen Murray. Hello. Professor Stephen Murray. Oh, oh, you flatter me, sir. Uh, You are a lecturer in film and television, aren't you? I am, and animation and games. And your brain is going to be... um, is going to be saved post-mortem and turned into a robot. Like like the Roald Dahl story, William and Mary, I'll be a brain in a jar with one eye. <laughs> well, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? <laughs> one thing that I meant to ask you um, a couple of weeks ago was we looked at the film Spaceflight IC1, which was set in the year 2015. And then I was that made me think of Back to the Future 2 is set in 2015. Ah. And, I, and I just wondered if there was a a a year that more than any other year that was seen in the in the twentieth century as like a perfect future mo- moment to make a film around. If you see what I mean. Well, Blade Runner is twenty nineteen. Okay, so definitely the twenty teens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first quarter of the twenty first century, I think. And why is that? Do you think? Do you think is that because it's sort of it's near future it's sort of it's like it's not too far into the future i I think it's because all of the things we were promised in the mid to late 20th century and everybody had this optimism that these things would be true come yeah and and in america with the boost with space race being one and all the technology that came out of that and plus we had the optimism just after the war and we and we we had the technology that the war provided us and we yes. were all buoyed up all happy and giddy yeah and then it all it all went to shit well except, i mean i'd say that just on the examples that i've given space flight ic1 the it, the year 2015 represents like the earth is screwed moment uh, doesn't it? yeah yeah and the the future the 2015 future in back to the future it's not it's not very appealing i don't think martin mcfly certainly in the future is just a just a weird sort of put upon work slave they do but they do they do have a nod into the direction of 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 the the promised future with the hoverboard that's true and the and the shoes that tie themselves up yeah (laughs) yeah i can remember as a kid in the 80s the year 2000 was often used for short as shorthand in comics for the future yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose two thousand AD. Two thousand AD. Well, look, let's let's crack on with the film that we are looking at today, which is a film called Cyborg twenty eighty seven, uh, which is an American science fiction film from nineteen sixty six, directed by Franklin Adrian and Arthur C. Pierce. Now, I'd never; those names are not like burnt into my memory for any reason. Are they? Uh, are, are those guys important? No, not really. Franklin did work on a lot of serials. He started off. He started off being a photographer in the army, and then he entered the. I was I was doing a little bit of research this morning on uh, film schools because a lot of these directors that we we review 
just appear to be directors. They haven't gone through any training other than generally using cameras during the war or being assistants and coming in at the bottom and working their way up. Mm. And uh, there was a film school in the 20s, but it was in Germany, of course. Uh, And an official one appeared in 1932. And then later on in the 60s, all of this went out the window and uh, everybody started breaking the rules. Nouvelle Vague, which was covered in Hitchcock. And then they decided that it was an art form and you could study it as an art form and and become a director. But all these people like, like Franklin, he, they just, they just seemed to bumble into it, but he mostly did serials like a lot of the ones we covered in the first few episodes. And that shows in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the film itself has a very sort of, um, 1980s television quality to it. Yeah. There was about five of these going to be made and they were all going to be for TV. Were they? It reminds yeah. me a lot of the Six Million Dollar Man sort of look and yeah, yeah, even yeah. like the A-Team and things like that yeah. that I remember in there. Mostly on a back lot. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's probably it, isn't it? One person, though, that we should talk about is Michael Rennie. Mm-hmm. Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still and he told us where we stand. Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still But he told us where we stand and flash Brilliant. Love it. So Michael Rennie, yeah, is um is the is, he played Clartu in The Day the Earth Stood Stood Still. And I think you did mention then you said, Oh, and we'll be looking at Cyborg <laughs> twenty eighty seven in the future. And here we are. <gasps> We're time travellers. Yeah. I'm pleased though when I was looking at Michael Rennie that to, to note that he's from Bradford. Really? Yeah, yeah. He was born in Idle, near Bradford. Second son of a Scottish wool wool mill owner. Um, Do you know what? He he's beginning to look like this description. <laughs> is it, is it, he is. He does. <laughs> he does. He does. And then he died in 1971. So six years after this, in Harrogate. No. Yeah. Has he got a plaque? Uh, he's in the Harlow Hill Cemetery in Harrogate. That's his final resting place. Oh, finally, I've got something to do when I go to Harrogate. <laughs> we should. I mean, if he doesn't, he should, shouldn't he? There should be a statue to Clartu in, in uh, Harrogate. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just <laughs> near on. Betty's. <laughs> Come on. Why in, in Betty's tea rooms isn't there a, a bun you can have called the Clartu Barada Nicto? <laughs> <laughs> oh, or in the ivy, they should have a they should have a cocktail. They should. They should. Of course, they should. There might already be some be, be something. I'm just, I'm just going to quickly Google it. I go there quite often, and I haven't seen a thing. Michael Rennie plaque. Ha- Hollywood star's son to unveil plaque to famous father. Oh my god, this was this year. August the 16th, 2023. This might have been a direct result of our podcast, you know. I do believe it is. <laughs> um, so it says, the brown plaque, which can be, which has been created by the Harrogate Civic Society, will be unveiled at One Otley Road, the Rennie family's former home, by Rennie's son, David, on Saturday, September the 9th, 11am in 2023. Oh, and I missed it. So David Rennie, who's a High Court judge... Whose godmother was Elizabeth Taylor? What? 
said, this plaque means a lot to me because I didn't know my father as well as I would have liked. I really got to know him, the way he moved the sound of his voice by watching his films. When I was growing up, it wasn't unusual to meet people who knew of him and his roles, especially after he played Harry Lyme in the TV series of The Third Man. And I was always get, I always got the feeling that he was very much liked and admired. When he wasn't in Hollywood, London or Geneva, he came to Yorkshire. I'm confident that although he had this glamorous life, the fact that he always kept on coming back to the family home in Harrogate meant that the connection mattered to him. And I wanted to mark that. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't that nice? Well, the next time I'm there, I'll be taking a photograph. Yeah, there it is. So it says, Michael Rennie, 1909-1971, internationally celebrated star of British and Hollywood films and television, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Robe, and The Third Man. Uh, No Cyborg, 2087. (laughs) Black seems to omit. I'm sorry, sorry the plaque's not big enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That's led us nicely to chat about Cyborg 2087. So just a very, very quick like plot summary. The film uh, starts in the year 2087 and uh, Michael Rennie is playing a cyborg called Garth. So this is, a, this is like a human who's had m- mechanical enhancements, isn't it? He is literally like the $6 million man. He's got, he's got one arm gloved. That is yeah. incredibly powerful. Yes. And he can jump off buildings. <laughs> he can. Uh, and so in the year 2087, free thought is illegal and the population is controlled by governments. And so a small band of free thinking kind of scientists sends Garth back to 1966 to prevent a professor from revealing a discovery which then sets in motion things that end up with the the world in 2087 being somewhere where free thought is illegal. So he's trying to he's trying to stop this moment, uh, which he realizes will erase him from history if he's if he's successful. And uh, but hopefully it'll mean that 2087 is a nicer place to be. So in in a way, it's it's um, slightly reminiscent of Terminator, I suppose, isn't it? Terminator Two. Terminator 2, yes. I'll be back. So you've got this situation where you've got someone from 2087 who is his, his dressed. What did you think of his clothes, his outfit oh, that he was wearing? I'm sure I've seen it before in another science fiction film. It's one of these things that they just recycle these things. Yeah. And the name Garth and the outfit, it's definitely a nod in the dark. Trying, trying to get a bit of kudos from the day the earth stood still. So Gort-like Garth. Gort, Garth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. The clothes reminded me of a, there's, um, again, this is quite a niche reference, but but definitely one that, that certain people will, will remember. There used to be a a school's programme that we, I used to watch when I was in school and they, um, they, you know, they used to wheel out the big telly and all the kids would watch this programme that the BBC did. And it, there was a drama on it called The Boy From Space. Oh, I remember that. And his outfit is very reminiscent of The Boy From Space. Yeah, it outfit. is. So it's like a onesie, isn't it? A silvery onesie. Kind of outfit they told us we'd all be wearing in 2015. <laughs> yes, exactly. On Tomorrow's World. <laughs> yeah. And he's got these these boots, these very sort of big silvery boots, which 
which play an important role later on. <laughs> he doesn't disguise them. <laughs> well, that's the thing I thought about it. Is that he's, it's, so in 2087, he's sent back. He's wearing this the 2087 clothes, but makes absolutely no effort to disguise himself when he mm. arrives in 1966. At least Arnold was naked when he appeared in yes. the past. So, yeah, so he, he sticks out like a sore blooming cyborg when he gets back to 1966 <laughs> uh, and he sort of um, he immediately encounters a sort of hostile gun-toting Americans oh, tis America and, <laughs> and then so has to he has to disarm them by shooting them with his, his ray gun his and, passive ray gun yeah that only can only sort of like um, incapacitate people for I mean it's very Dalek-y in a way isn't it yeah but um, the thing that I thought was hilarious straight away was the sound effect that they chose for the gun. Oh. I mean, it's like, well, it's weird, isn't it? It's like a boing, boing. It's like a classic sort of Looney Tunes sound effect. It was very piddly. <laughs> yeah, the piddly passive gun. And so he, once he's disarmed these guys, he knows he's got to get to this sort of science laboratory. It's then that he he decides to disguise himself. And picks the most pervy overcoat you could possibly pick. Yeah. With to his little boots himself. sticking out underneath like Sooty's legs with <laughs> wellies on. <laughs> so he's, he disguises himself with this overcoat and he puts a hat on. But he again, he doesn't recognise that the silver boots are... We'll give him away. He then heads off to the, to the science lab to meet up with Professor Sigmund Marx. <laughs> so oh, marvellous. This reminded me a lot of the, <laughs> the terrible naming of, of in Tetsuchi in 28 Go. Professor Brilliant. <laughs> yes. I mean, Sigmund Marx, that's just rubbish, isn't it? Well, actually, going with Marx is pretty, pretty, uh, yeah, that's thing true. in America. Yeah. And so then, uh, I keep wanting to call him Klaatu. Then Garth, <laughs> Garth Steele. Klaatu too. Klaatu too. <laughs> so yeah, so so this this professor has invented this chip, which will mean that pe- people can read other people's thoughts. Yeah, and this I'll is be, the th- and be controlled and be that's right. And this is the thing that that uh, Klaatu too has got to stop. And so I was thinking, like, how would you do that? Like, how would you be able to persuade somebody that you're from the future and and not them not think that you're you're just crackers? By starting with the incredibly uh, com- compliant uh, assistant. Dr. Sharon Mason. Yes. Played uh, by... Karen Steele. Who ends up in an episode of Star Trek... With the wonderful Harry Mudd in it, who we will be reviewing because there's another episode where called I Mud, which is full of robots. Oh, excellent. So she will be seeing Karen Steele again. So yeah, so he 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 rocks up at the um what's Skynet. <laughs> so Clarty rocks up at Skynet. <laughs> and the, the professor isn't there. He's he's away giving a lecture. But his assistant is his assistant, Dr. Sharon Mason. And I mean, Klaatu is—he's he, acting. I mean, he's all over the shop, isn't he? He's he just, just keeps like switching things on and off, yeah. and she doesn't seem to mind. <laughs> he's just wanted he's just him. flicking switches. <laughs> Wrists would be slapped. Tomorrow at nine o'clock, 
The world is destined to learn that Professor Marks' important breakthrough in the field of radio telepathy. Well, now, how did you know that? It hasn't been publicized. That is a fact of history, Dr. Mason. A fact which must be altered. He then tells her what's going on, and she believes him. But he has to use the, the, the sort of the machine that... Um... But she believes him before that. Then he puts the machine on her and uses his own chip in his head to, to hypnotise her. Oh, and yeah. Persuade, and persuade her that everything is you know has to happen yes yeah which gives you kind of a feeling of what it's like in his world where everybody's made to be compliant i see that i didn't get that at all from this no don't worry there's lots of things in there. i've watched this now three times and it's like <laughs> and i there's Seeing lots the of nuance. moments when i go oh okay yeah yeah well that could have been filmed better yeah so uh, sharon mason dr sharon mason is now sort of like as you say, sort of hypnotised. And she's also aware that she's hypnotised as well, in a way, isn't she? Isn't that gaslit? I suppose, yeah, I suppose it is. For, for somebody who hasn't seen the film, she's not sort of like, I will obey you, no. sort of hypnotised, is she? She's just no. acting very normally, except for the fact that she now just completely believes everything that Klaatu has told her. Two. Klaatu, too, has told her to. <laughs> two. <laughs> and... Uh, now, at this point, Klaatu 2 decides that he's got to have his chip removed because he knows it's a way that, that these other cyborgs from the future will be able to track him down. Which have just landed in a giant, a similar ship to his, but just looks like a capacitor. Or a suppository. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my yeah, bones so... just twitched. <laughs> So there are there are cyborgs from the future who are, who are now uh, after him, and they're called yeah. tracers. So. Now we're getting the the perfect parallel with, with the Terminator Two, which yeah. is also there was a an Outer Limits episode called Soldier, which I think predates this, written by Harland Harlan Ellison, and then l later on Harlan Ellison he took them to court over the similarities of the story. And I think they, they settled out of court. But he basically said, if James Cameron had come to him and says, we want to use elements of your story and, well, massively the entire plot, he would have said, yeah, fine, stick my name on the end. But he didn't. So there's, there's three. There's an Outer Limits episode called The Soldier. There's Cyborg 2087 and there is Terminator 2, all sharing exactly the same plot. And even some similarities in certain scenes. Right, okay. So do you, have you noticed some similarities between 2087 and Terminator 2 in, in the scenes? Yes, where um, Schwarzenegger takes a knife, grizzly, uh, grizzly opens up his arm and shows his workings. Oh, Whereas yeah. Whereas in this one, he just his workings are on the outside because they haven't got the budget. And he does exactly the same. He, he proves that he's a cyborg by yeah. lifting up his sleeve and there's there's a couple of silver Bic pens under there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so the so the cyborgs from the future, Terminator Two style, are now chasing him. The tracers are chasing him. But again, they feel they don't feel any need to camouflage themselves in any no, way. No, no. And all they do is they've got like a compass on their wrist. I love that. I just love it. <laughs> which, they're from, which they're honestly, from the future, <laughs> and they've just got a little compass, and yeah. they're so noisy, everyone can hear them coming because yeah. they just beep. And they the compass. 
is the sort of compass, exactly the sort of compass that you would have had as a kid. In the that, heel of your shoe. Yeah, it's exactly one of those, isn't it? Or you'd have got from a cracker or something. Yeah. And and all they do is so it's on their wrist, and all they do is they hold their wrist out in front of them and they run. And they yep. so there's just scene after scene where they are just running through the streets of LA. So just just they they could just got to follow the signal on their wrist. From there are their various cracker, things in this film compass. that are like the the thing. Do they mean this to be funny? Well, actually, we're gonna we're coming up to a, a sort of like a weird comedy interlude. Oh, come on! Because we've got so we've got Clartu. Oh no. Uh, Going to have his and and Doctor Sharon takes him off to a friend, a doctor friend, who's going to remove the the uh, the chip. <laughs> the doctor friend has a daughter, who's on a night out with a couple of blokes, and they turn up sort of mid procedure when when the doctor is trying to, to take the chip out of out of Garth, and what it sets in motion what must be like a five minute sequence, which essentially is. Is is dancing, just dancing to sort of that sort of crazy sixties dancing. Well, you say dancing. <laughs> if it is dancing, they're dancing to the previous record because they're not dancing to the one they've put on. That's Laura and her friends. I found it quite hypnotic. It was hypnotic. I to show, I showed it to my eighteen-year-old son who laughed like a drain. At the uh, <laughs> at what was going on? Um, Far out, man! But one of the—I mean, this was just a detour I went on. One of the uh, actors who's playing the, um, the 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 lads, who are the dancing lads, who plays—I think his character is called Skinny or Slim or something. He's the sort of giant giant of the oh, two. Oh, he's the big one. Yeah, the big okay. lad. He, the actor, played uh, for any Dallas fans. Played Mark Grayson in uh, Dallas, who ended oh, up really? being Pam Ewing's squeeze after Bobby Ewing died, and then his whole storyline was effectively the the dream. Honey, what's the matter? You look like you just saw a ghost. So there, that was just an interesting little interlude. No, for, I think that is for any there's, Dallas. There's a lot fans. of little branching off, isn't there, in this one? <laughs> yeah. So the the dancing lads, they recognise that something is up with Clartu because of his boots. So there was a reason why he had to <laughs> he had to not not hide his boots. Are you suggesting that they had a conversation about the plot and said, "Well, we have to leave the boots revealed"? Yes, yes. Wow. so that somebody, so that somebody notices them later on. So, um, so anyway, so the, so the um, <laughs> so Clartu Garth, I mean Garth and the Susan Thingamajig, and now the Doctor, they all sort of like leave because they know that that they've got to get to the power station in order to completely destroy the chip. Ah, um, no, that's another another reference to Terminator. Is it? Well, there, yeah, they have to, they, they can't, he couldn't just leave this chip uh, because it's it's future technology. Ah. So he has to destroy it, which is exactly the same in Terminator 2. They've got to get rid of everything. Right, okay. I, I didn't fully understand why they needed to destroy the chip. Well, I've just thought of that now. It seems to me nobody's really given any kind of thought to the the trials and tribulations of time travel. I think they've just basically, time travel in this is just something that can happen. Yeah. 
I think they do think about it for the end, but then the whole thing in the middle, no. Yeah, it's this this sequence is incredibly strange. So there's this house, this doctor's house, where all the dancing is taking place. But the doctor and Garth have now gone to the power station. Susan stayed behind with the dancing lads. And uh, then the tracers turn up to the house. And, and even in the future, they don't seem to understand windows and doors. <laughs> no, they don't at all. And then also there's a weird bit where they, they're a bit horny. Yeah. And they try and sort of like, like but they're put pawing at Susan, which I just thought was very strange. Because um, he explained, didn't he, when he was on the table getting his chip removed, that they have no emotion. And yet there they are, being all weird. I thought the score was really intrusive. It was, but it was quite nice in places. Um, Paul Dunlap. It was a right workhorse in Hollywood, and he, uh, but he did, did do an awful lot of uh, westerns. He's a bit sort of obvious at times when he's doing all the uh, science, science fiction-y, electronic-y bits. He'll have, like, weird plinky-plonky music. And, uh, but, yes, it was a bit intrusive. So, anyway, so at the power station, there's the sort of, like, there's a big um, battle between the Tracers and Garth, and Garth kills one of them. He does. And he electrocutes then... him with his chip. That's right. And then, then they, oh God. And then it's just so confusing. I mean, this film, if it sounds like it's confusing, it is quite confusing. So there's, a, there's this big sort of like what you think is going to be the final act at the power station, but they just kill one of the tracers. The tracer then is chasing Garth seemingly across America, but they end up back at the Wild West deserted sort of town that Garth started in. And so then there's the final sort of like big f- fight there. And goodness, what a fight it is. So the, the last, the, 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 the tracer who's still alive kidnaps Susan, trusses her up in a barn and her screams alert Garth. Now, there's a sort of a, a bit here, isn't there, where, where all the way through the film, Garth has been very emotionless and I've got to get my mission and all this sort of stuff. And he is about to sort of like complete his mission because he's got he he in the he's perfe- he he's got hold of the professor he's perfe- persuaded the professor that he's got to not show his off his workings, um, but he then has a change of heart, Garth, and goes and rescues Susan because <laughs> because <laughs> because well I suppose he's in love with her, isn't he? Oh really? And, but there's that there's that scene there. So he he does he has this ludicrously massive fist fight with the other tracer that goes on for ages, ages and ages and ages. And for yeah. for for saying that there's like lots of tech, it seemed like such yeah. a lo-fi fight, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes back and rescues Susan, and then Susan says, "I've got you know." Says, "Right, okay, I I want to come with you back to the future." I, I love you and you love me and... After I have gone, to be free of my will, you will no longer care. I will care. I will. I love you, Garth. And you love me. You know that's true because you came back to save me. I found that very odd because I hadn't noticed any sort of sign of love from him anyway before because he's no, been... No, none from him, but she was... She was quite doughy-eyed from the beginning. She was a bit, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> she and recognized she was... his Bradford uh, mill owner quality, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> she and she was thinking about the the hills in Scotland, the the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> So that all came as something of a surprise to me, that, that scene where she she says, I love you and you love me. And uh, But he then persuades her that, <laughs> that she can't go with him because he's going he's gonna to cease to exist in a few minutes. Because... No, I think that's quite brave. And I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant thing. Yeah. It, for me, it had vibes, though, of... So a woman who fancies a gay man and a gay man basically trying to be nice to <laughs> I said, no, at nine o'clock, I'll disappear. I'll cease to exist. Okay, I love you. Bye-bye. <laughs> if only. If only we could, but we can't. Yeah, no, I agree. I thought the ending was quite nice, this idea that that because the professor at a specific time won't reveal his, his trade secrets on this technology, that everything will have, will have not happened because the future will be different. They should have left it there. They should have left it with with Michael Rennie oh, disappearing. God, so, but I so yeah, I, absolutely. There's a because then oh, there's just the. Have you, do you remember oh, Psycho? After it all finishes, there's this the psychiatrist in the office explaining to everybody in the theatre who was probably in a state of complete and utter shock, uh, exactly what was going on. Doesn't make it any better. Doesn't forward the story at all he just explains that norman bates was obsessed with his mother and dressing up as him in fact it makes it creepier yeah but in this film it's exactly the same that whole explanation at the end yeah then so we we sort of we the, the last scene is effectively the professor um going to going to his meeting with all of the uh, the army dudes who want the technology and basically saying to them you can't have it because you're not ready the world isn't ready for it and and then the and then the army being very a bit sort of disgruntled by the fact they can't have it, but then just leaving. Yeah, but we know what would happen. We do. He would be kidnapped. <laughs> it was yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and they would steal the technology. So I, I agree with you. I think that they should just have left it with with Garth disappearing out of existence. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think so as well. I think completely that is a... different for for a nineteen sixties film. Yeah, and so we... but that happens in Terminator Two with the the whole thumbs, thumbs up. up. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Okay, so we've got to rate the robots, and there are three robots to rate in this film. <laughs> we've got the all the cyborgs. We've got Garth, and we've got the uh, tracers. The tracers are, are pretty rubbish. They're terrible, aren't they? They're yeah. so terrible. They are. And they're, they're just like, like border guards. They've got a border guard outfit on, and all they're doing is running, following yeah. their stupid compasses on their wrists. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah, all. they can have two. I'm going to give them two, one each. Yeah, good. What about Garth, then? He's still a bit rubbish, but I think, you know, of all the robots we've watched, he, he's had plenty to do. He has had plenty to do, you're right. Yeah, and I and like he's the done fa- it. I like the fact that he's sort of a proto-Terminator. Yeah, yeah. That's all quite good. I still Ooh. think he's shit. Yeah, he is. Should we give him six? Let's give him six. Oh, let's give him six. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll scratch that onto his plaque. <laughs> now, when I'm there. <laughs> so there we have it. Twenty eighty-seven. The uh, robot in that, Garth, is shit, <laughs> but not that shit. No. 
Right, that is it for this week's episode. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Please share your love for our podcast, 50 Years of Shit Robots, and we will see you next time for another thrilling episode. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, we weren't going to the lab. We were showing the girls how to groove. Yeah, that's right. You know, jerking.